Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Spoiler alert, I'm excited about this week's lesson. I'm really looking forward to talking about the story of Peter and Cornelius. So it may not be one that immediately jogs your memory, but it's going to be in Acts 10, the whole chapter, so you can flip over there. Um, we'll read some portions on our way, but um, that's the story we're going to be talking about. And this is just one of those stories that I think for me just reminds me so much how much scripture brings alive the character and the heart of God. Um, and I just love getting to talk about scripture. I love getting to read scripture. I love getting to learn from scripture um, because ultimately it helps just, it's a great compass um, for all of us. For me, I know it is just to reorient my heart, my mind toward the things of God um, when it can be so easy to be distracted by the cares of this world. This story is, I think just for me, helps reorient my heart, my mind to think, man, there's a lot of things I think are really important that aren't. And there's a lot of really important things that um, I don't act like they're that important. But um, it's a good reminder. Anytime we open up scripture, we know that we're hearing the words of the Lord and we can be grateful for that. We're very blessed to be able to have such access to, to God's word. And I'm just looking forward to getting to talk about it a little bit more today. So like I said, we're going to be in Acts 10. We're going to be reading the story of Peter and Cornelius. So before I jump into verse one there, just a reminder of kind of where we've been in Acts so far. So we've taken a couple of detours into some epistles, but as far as Acts goes, I'm going to hit a couple big points that will kind of hopefully lead us to where we are. So Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, wait in Jerusalem. He says, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, and then we kind of move into this part of the church history where it's going to be really focused on the Jerusalem church. And we're going to see a lot of stories there, some good ones about them sharing everything, some harder to stomach ones like Ananias and Sapphira being struck down. Um, and then uh, another tough one to read when Stephen is martyred as he's preaching to a group of uh, Jews, but they're Hellenistic Jews. They're Jews that are apart from uh, different areas and have come to worship in Jerusalem. So again, we're kind of seeing that gospel spread a little bit. And then recently we talked about Paul's conversion and the revelation that he would be the apostle to the Gentiles, to which the Jews at the time would have probably said the what to the who. Um, that was not really something that they expected, even though Jesus was somewhat clear about where the gospel was going. But we're hard-headed people, and so were the disciples sometimes. And uh, now we're at the story of Peter and Cornelius. And this is really, um, to use an engineering term, this is really a fulcrum kind of story in the book of Acts. This is going to change a lot of what happens in the early church. It's going to change a lot of uh, the attitudes. It's going to shape a lot of the stories going forward through the rest of Acts. So this story, while again, you hear Peter and Cornelius might sound familiar, not maybe sure what happens in the story. This is a pretty, um, this is a pretty watershed moment for the church um, and specifically starting with Peter. Um, there's gonna be a lot of uh, fallout from this. Um, so it's an important story and one that really, again, what we're going to be discussing is just the heart of God and ultimately the heart of God for all nations. Um, whereas early church, um, they, kind of had a little bit of a more Jewish focus and they kind of thought like, oh yeah, this is a Jewish, Christianity is a Jewish thing, which um, it is, but 
um, they're going to start to learn more and more that it's also a thing for people who are not Jewish. So we are going to be in Acts 10. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 7 to get us started on this story. Starting in verse 1, it says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we've got this guy, Cornelius, and he's described as a a devout man who feared God. Um, This was kind of a category they had for uh, people um, outside of Judaism. They would call him a God-fearer. So um, you could be a full Jewish proselyte, which is that you are not Jewish by uh, heritage or ethnicity, but that you have chosen to become a follower of Judaism. And so that would be like a full-fledged proselyte. Um, a God-fearer, um, which is how Cornelius would fit, is somebody who recognized the God of Israel. And as we see from the description of Cornelius, he worshiped him and he prayed to him and he gave alms on his behalf. Um, but he he wasn't a full proselyte. So he hadn't been circumcised. He probably didn't worship in a temple um, in Jerusalem or real probably any um, synagogue either. Um, he probably wasn't allowed because he was not circumcised. Um, so he's basically somebody who worships the God of Israel, who's also our God, um, even though it wasn't maybe within organized Judaism, which it was, um, again, a category that they kind of had to describe people outside of the Jewish faith. Um, it says that he prayed uh, continually, um, literally in Greek, it says that he prayed through everything or he prayed during everything. Um, so the commentary I was reading um, by Daryl Bach on Acts, it says he you might call him a prayer warrior. He's like an old time prayer warrior. I'm sure that you have people in your life um, that you know of. There's, yeah, this person, they pray. Um, and when they pray, like things happen. Um, I believe that God really does work through people very uniquely in prayer. And it's always great to have a person who just relies on prayer. It's just a continual reliance on God, something that uh, I hope that people would use to describe me at some point in my life. Um, Though, if I'm honest, that's definitely not how I describe myself right now, Um, but have benefited greatly from people who have prayed faithfully for me and for for those around me. I I hope that you have people in your life like that. Well, this was what Cornelius was. He was a prayer warrior. Um, He was somebody who prayed through everything to God. And so he has this vision um, to this God that he prays to. He's still very scared, um, as people tend to be when angels of the Lord come. And uh, the angel of the Lord tells him, you're going to go find Simon. Angel of the Lord says, now listen, there's going to be two Simons. All right, you're going to see Simon the Tanner. He owns the house. That's not the guy. We're going for Simon called Peter. So um, unfortunate situation for these strangers um, going to find Peter to have two people with the same name at the same house. But... Again, another spoiler alert, it's going to work out just fine. And the tanner's not going to get in the way. So that's kind of what happens. Um, And so he gets together some guys, uh, Cornelius does, and he sends them to find this Simon who is not a tanner. And this is a really interesting um, story because, oh, hey, this guy's like having this vision of an angel of the Lord. He's somebody who 
was praying to God and didn't actually like worship within organized Judaism. Um, but this is actually not an uncommon story, um, even in modern times. So um, you're not going to typically hear like an American say that they had a, a vision or a dream in which they encountered Jesus. Um, but this is actually uh, fairly common in kind of less westernized nations and frankly, nations that don't have as much of a Christian influence. Um, I've known many people who have served in the Middle East, and uh, I would say it's especially prevalent in the Middle East that there are people who will say they had visions or dreams where Jesus came to them and said something to them. Um, I would say a large percentage of the people that uh, I know who have served in the Middle East as missionaries would say that's a very common story with people that they meet, especially those who, when they hear that these people are Christians or that they want to talk about Jesus, um, those who are interested typically oftentimes will have a story of a dream they had about Jesus. And he'll say, um, you know, kind of various things um, to them uh, and it piques their interest. And it's to the point, I guess that it's real enough that it, it really has an effect. You know, sometimes we have those dreams that really stick with us. Um, a dream about Jesus is one for these. So it, this is a good time for us to even just kind of take a step back and think, okay, God didn't contact Cornelius through his local synagogue or even originally at first through a person when it was came to talking about Jesus, he came to him in a vision. And it's not to say that Jesus is always going to come to people in visions or that God always is going to use Jesus in visions to speak to people. But it's something that I think we need to be cognizant of that is possible. So if you were, are ever to meet somebody who says they had a dream or Jesus came to them, Maybe think back to this story and say, huh, well, that's happened before. Um, this was an angel of God, maybe not Jesus himself in this vision, but um, it's something to to keep in the back of our mind that we don't kind of close God in on what we think uh, he's capable of or what he uses. Um, for us who have a lot of access to scripture, we often think, well, yeah, God speaks through scripture. That's how he speaks, and he absolutely does. Um, but we have to also know that God has a heart for all the nations and not all the nations have Bibles in their hands. So, um, but that doesn't stop God's relentless pursuit of those that, um, that he loves and that he cares for. So just a little side note there, but, uh, so moving down into verse nine, we're going to see, um, that there's something else going on. Another vision that is happening. That's going to be related. So starting in verse nine, it says the next day, as they were on their journey, they being those that, um, Cornelius had sent, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, this is Simon Peter, not Simon the Tanner, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And then a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So um, right as these fellows are approaching from Cornelius, Peter, uh, who is kind of maybe your more traditional um, follower of Jesus at this point, he grew up in Judaism and he encountered the actual Jesus. Um, he's familiar with the Old Testament. Now he's having a vision too. He falls into a trance-like state. Um, and this voice comes to him. 
if you ask the ESV, it was Jesus's voice because it's in red letters. Um, though we don't get a specific mention that it was the words of Jesus right here. Um, but it's basically the these animals on this sheet and it's saying, and the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So the background of this is um, in the Old Testament, there are certain foods as well as certain actions um, that are considered unclean. Um, and by actions, you could also like say, um, maybe like an, an illness or um, even other things that can happen to your body um, could be considered unclean. Um, but one of the big things was food. And for that reason, um, Jews were set apart to not eat certain foods as was commanded in the Old Testament. So um, being in a Jewish society, Peter would have had the opportunity to pretty much always avoid those unclean foods because things like uh, pork or um, there's even certain shellfish, um, certain ways of preparing things. There's a lot of different um, things that you see in the uh, Old Testament law, what makes a food unclean. Um, but Peter living in a Jewish society would have been able to pretty well um, adhere to this law because those things just weren't really offered in those kind of Jewish settings because they were all in agreement. These are not foods we should eat. So that's kind of the background Peter's coming from. And then now he sees this great sheet descending, which is kind of interesting in itself, but um, it's got animals, reptiles, birds of the air, and apparently some of them are unclean based on Peter's reaction. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, well, I've never, I've never defiled myself with something that was unclean or common. Um, so I'm not going to, he basically says, no, I'm not going to eat those things. Uh, but the voice comes again, what God has made clean, do not call common. And it says this happened three times. So Peter is starting to get this, this vision um, that's related to these foods, but he's going to come to realize too, that it's uh, got a little bit of a broader significance in the story of the church. Um, but he kind of has this strange experience. And what do you know? Um, then what happens next is these guys from Cornelius, um, they show up. And the vo a voice comes, this, it says that the Spirit said to Peter in verse 19, um, like, hey, these guys are here, um, go with them and don't hesitate. So basically, Peter lets them in. Um, he's curious about why they're coming, but he knows that he's supposed to receive them. And so they kind of give him an introductory, hey, here's who this guy Cornelius is. Here's what happened to him. He sent us here to get you. And so Peter invites them in to be his guests. So that in itself is a very big deal, as we'll talk about um, here in the next section. So uh, these two visions that are happening, um, one happens, Cornelius sends some guys. As the guys approach, Peter has this vision that's going to really uh, affect the way that he interacts with them because he would have been tempted to think that they were unclean and that he should not interact with them. Again, we'll talk about it here in just a second. Um, but instead, he's kind of primed with this idea of what God's made clean, don't call common. And then this encouragement from the spirit says, don't be afraid to go with them. I've sent them. So Peter invites them in and, and they head out. Um, and then it says in that next paragraph, starting the second half of verse 23, it says the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So by brothers, it's going to be that some other believers come with, with Peter here to go see Cornelius. In verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. 
And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter comes in, he, he brings a little, a little group with him of uh, believers. Uh, I don't know if they're like his bodyguards or he just wants some other witnesses who knows why, but he, he did, he brings them and they go into this house of Cornelius. Um, Cornelius, God bless him, uh, starts worshiping Peter. Peter's like, hey, maybe let's not do that. Um, go ahead and stand up. I'm a man too. Um, so good for Peter. He could have maybe basked in it for a little bit, but no, no. He said, don't worship me. I too am a man. Um, I've also made many mistakes as we're very familiar with Peter doing. So um, he sets him straight on that. And then he kind of tells him, hey, you know, you know, I really shouldn't be here if you were to ask my other you know, Jewish brothers. I shouldn't be here, but I had this vision. So we get a couple things here. Um, so what he's saying about it's unlawful for a Jew to associate, um, it's not so much a direct uh, a direct violation of the law so much as it was a practice to avoid breaking the uncleanness that we discussed earlier. So coming into contact with somebody who was unclean could make you unclean is kind of what's in the law. So people that were unclean in the Old Testament, they were kind of set set aside. Um, they would be put outside the camp or whatever until they had performed whatever they needed to do to become clean again. So um, for Peter to interact with somebody who, let's say, had eaten uh, pork, um, that would be caused for him to be unclean. So it became a very common practice and in their defense uh, was mostly in keeping with the law um, that Jews and Gentiles did not share meals. They did not share homes. So in verse 23, when Peter uh, invites him to be his guest, um, that's a pretty big deal. Um, So Peter's taking a big step there. And then now he's going into a Gentile house, which is an even bigger deal because not only would people there maybe have eaten something unclean, something unclean may have been cooked there. Um, You know, they may have been ill again with some of those um, bodily things um, like leprosy, even uh, a woman who is menstruating could be considered unclean. So he's kind of taking a big risk. And what he's saying is it's because of this vision that he had. So good on Peter. He sees the vision. It's kind of related to this food, but he's already kind of, he's starting to see the direction that it's going. He's starting to see where, God is bringing him. And he even quotes the the part that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. Um, So he's kind of extrapolating a little bit what God was calling him to correctly. So good for Peter for recognizing that it wasn't just about food, not saying, hey, Peter, you can go have yourself a a nice pork loin. It's more like, hey, not only is the food something that um, you shouldn't consider unclean, but the people associated with that food as well. So he's going to go in there and he asks, you know, kind of, Hey, why'd you send me or why'd you send for me? He probably already has an idea, but he's going to talk to, he's going to ask him to explain it anyway. So, um, so Peter goes in the house and Cornelius basically tells the story, tells everything that happened um, about uh, the vision that he had about how he was told to call for Peter. Um, And then he's like, basically I was just doing what this God that I fear told me to do. So Peter, again, he's picking up on the cues. And so um, Peter starts to share the gospel. Peter starts to share the story of Jesus with uh, this household of Gentiles. And it says that Cornelius, uh, he had some of his family and his friends there. So this is a group of of Gentiles, and maybe they don't all share Cornelius' 
um, worship of of the one true God. Um, but they've come to his house, and now Peter is going to start sharing the story of Jesus. So again, Peter is is really understanding, and the Spirit is leading Peter to understand that this isn't just about food; that this is about God and what he thinks of people, how he loves people, the grace he shows to people. So ultimately it's about God's movement toward people outside of the Jewish faith rather than just dietary restrictions. So Peter is um, being brought along by the spirit and, and Peter's acting in obedience. So um, he's going to tell them this story. I'm um, just kind of, and he's even assuming here that they already know some of the story about Jesus um, here in this paragraph from 34 to 43. And he talks about what Jesus did, how he was killed, um, but that how he was resurrected. And then the mission that he gave to the disciples to um, to preach to the people, to testify that he, Jesus, um, is appointed to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43, to him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter kind of shares this message and he gets to this and I don't know about you when I read this, it kind of seems like he's stopped in the middle a little bit. I don't know that he was totally just at the end of his message, but what we see is something miraculous. So the, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy spirit fell on all those who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised. So it's a way of describing the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. In verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of, the Je- of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter's, um, he shares this statement that all can receive forgiveness through his name. And then the Holy Spirit descends on the whole group. And everybody who heard those words, uh, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And so we know that the Holy Spirit falls on those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say Peter shared this. He maybe wasn't even finished talking about everything that Jesus had done. And these people believe they believe in who Jesus is and they receive the Holy spirit. And this is the first time that's recorded in acts that a Gentile, somebody from outside the Jewish faith has received the Holy spirit. So for Peter, for those believers who are with them, they are astounded. And again, they're starting to understand this unfolding plan of God that's coming, that we talked about at the very beginning, that there's kind of been this unfolding. Some things are getting pushed a little bit. You know, it's not just Jerusalem. Now it's these Hellenistic Jews. Now Paul is having this uh, command that he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is now interacting with this Gentile. We're seeing this progression and they're starting to realize uh, slowly, or maybe they're realizing quickly the the whole of the church is going to realize a little more slowly um, that the gospel is for all people. And they, again, they kind of probably knew that to an extent, but they, they mostly thought of faith in Jesus coming through Judaism. So people who would first adhere to the law, be circumcised, become full proselytes of Judaism, and then believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism, which they are right. Um, But they're realizing this plan is also including people that were from outside of Judaism, which um, is cause for them to, to worship, cause for them to worship God. So that's the story. Um, what goes on in chapter 11 and into the next chapters 
very, very, very church drama, very far from what you see in Acts 2, where they had all things in common, they shared all their stuff. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into some division where there's some disagreement. Um, Peter's going to tell the church what happens and they're going to kind of be like, mm, we're not so sure about all that. Um, so that may be something that comes up later in our curriculum, but that's kind of the story. And I think as we um, read this story, um, pretty much everybody who'd be listening to this is somebody who is a beneficiary of this truth of God's plan for the gospel for all nations. I'm not of Jewish heritage. I have never been a Jewish proselyte. I do not believe that any of you have either. So not only do we get to look at this story and we get to hopefully be grateful anew for what God has done that has allowed even us to receive the Holy Spirit, for us to be called his children, for us to be his chosen nation, his holy or his holy nation, his chosen people. Um, but it's also an opportunity for us to think, okay, in what ways now do we think of ourselves as maybe the Jews did? Um, that we think, yes, this is our faith. This faith belongs to us. Sometimes even the discussion about um, visions and dreams can make us think, well, uh, I don't know anybody who's had that. So that seems wrong. That's probably not right. Um, that can be our reaction to things, um, spiritual experiences that people have that we're not familiar with. Or um, people who maybe don't have the same um, just general lifestyle or general beliefs, kind of more societal beliefs that also uh, believe in Jesus and maybe have some very different um, just values. Um, maybe sometimes we can think, oh, they don't they don't truly believe in Jesus because their values, their societal values are not nearly the same as mine. But what we have to do when we have moments like that is we need to have a heart check and remind ourselves that just as we are the beneficiaries of uh, people who were not expected to receive the gospel, receiving the gospel, that we need to have the same attitude and really the same uh, conformity to God's plan that the gospel is for all people. And ultimately, we know that the gospel unites all people. We become one people in Christ when we believe in Jesus, but we also have to realize that believing in Jesus doesn't homogenize all people. So what I mean by that, we don't all become the exact same when we believe in Jesus. We still have those cultural, uh, ethnic, um, national elements to us that influence our personality, our, our modes of worship, um, maybe even certain parts of God um, that we emphasize more than others. And so we have to recognize that when we see believers in either different parts of our country, um, different denominations, different countries, um, different times even, um, thinking about Christianity maybe 400 years ago and how different it looks now in terms of practice, um, that we recognize that God's working in, in every place and every time to conform us more into the image of Christ. But just because it doesn't look the same for us as it does some maybe somebody who lives in China who's a believer, and maybe they don't have the same uh, you know, ability to read scripture. They maybe don't hold the same uh, cultural societal values we do or even governmental values, that that doesn't mean that the gospel is not for them. And while I don't think we would typically verbalize it that way, sometimes we can kind of have an attitude a little bit that um, the gospel looks like this church looks like this, believing in Jesus looks like this. Um, and just being willing to have our minds open to what God's doing, even outside of um, our norms. And so a couple questions I want to leave you with um, as we discuss this, and this is a question I ask myself too, are we open to being an instrument of God to those who aren't like us? 
are we open to being people that shine the light of the gospel, share the gospel without preconceived notions to those who aren't like us? Again, maybe they have different cultural values. Maybe they're from different countries. Maybe they're of different race or ethnicities. Um, are we willing and open to being instruments of God to those who aren't like us? And even if they believed in Jesus, still wouldn't be like us, maybe in some of those um human ways, even though we would be united in the gospel. And, and this is, of course, this is a big topic now, but do we pursue unity with all people? Um, obviously, um, cultural unity doesn't hold a candle to the unity we find in Christ. Um, there's no earthly, uh, cultural, national, political answer for unity um, that can compare to the answer that is in Christ. But what ways are we pursuing that unity um, with all people in the name of the gospel? What are ways that we can be pursuing unity, reconciliation with people that are different from us, that have maybe been historically different for us for centuries? Um, what are we doing to pursue unity with those? What are we doing to be the light of the gospel to those, even though they're different from us? And how do our actions um, toward them and people like them reflect our gospel, reflect our King, reflect Jesus? So uh, I hope this was helpful just to kind of help see this transition that's happening in the early church toward a really Jewish focused faith to now a faith that's also including Gentiles, again, of which what I believe most of us, if not all of us, are the beneficiaries. And Really, if nothing else from this, I just hope that this gives you an opportunity to glorify God just for the lavish love, grace that he has shown us through Jesus, that um, people who weren't even his people to begin with, that he would draw people who are far from him into his family and make us co-heirs with Christ. So if nothing else, as always, when we come to scripture, an opportunity to glorify God, and he's absolutely deserving of it. Thank you.